Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Thanks for having me on. Um, glad to be able to uh, to do this tonight. Um, I, I guess by way of introduction, um, I uh, I'm the CEO of a boutique consultancy that specializes in disruptive innovation. I I mostly work with startups, um, and uh, I I got into this business kind of a roundabout way. Um, I, I've been uh, in the technology business for more than 30 years. And my my, uh, my earliest days were in a software company um, back in the days when that meant you worked on a mainframe and, um, you know, many computers were just starting to, to take hold. Um, it, and in fact, it was, it was a time so pre, pre-technology the way we see it today that if you said you were in the software business, people's eyes immediately glazed over. They didn't know what you were talking about unless they were in information technology themselves. So, um, I mean, the, the world has obviously changed quite a bit since then. But um, my, uh, my, my earliest experience was, was with the software company, and, and we thought we had a world-beating technology um, Certainly, compared to all our competitors, it was uh, probably the um, technically the best product in the market. Um, honestly, we had at best uh, mediocre success. We were always profitable, but we never, you know, we, we never grew the way we thought we could or should, um, and certainly not the way you see companies take off today. Um, and that was that was an experience uh, that always stuck with me because when I looked at our competitors, um, they had what we thought were crappy products, but they seemed to do ten times as well. Um, and I saw that pattern repeat in the market over the years in the technology business over and over again, with other companies, with companies that we worked with, and um, you know it, st- it stuck in the back of my mind. It was 
you know, one of those things where you, after a while, you, you start to doubt yourself. You wonder if, if you're just not getting it, if you're, um, if your own evaluation of your capabilities, your product was wrong. Um, and uh, they basically, in the late 1990s, um, it all it came around. Uh, you know that that was a time when the first dot com boom and everything was going gangbusters. And the book called The Innovator's Dilemma was published by Clayton Christensen, which uh, was the first time the theory of disruptive innovation was was talked about. And um, a light went on for me. I uh, I saw that that theory explained. Um, not just my own experiences, but the things I had seen in the marketplace for the previous 20 years. And um, uh, uh, sort of a sidebar, a friend of mine was, um, he was a research director at UBS Securities. And his, his claim to fame was that he was the, the, first, the first analyst to make a strong buy call on research in motion, BlackBerry, and he told me that he he made that call based on his understanding of disruption theory, and um, and he said that he was planning to start a, a boutique consultancy in in that uh, business, and wondered if I would join him. Now, we, we talked a bit about you know disruption and you know my my feeling that it explained my my history, and so that's how I got into this business. Um, I um, I'm on my own now. He went back into the securities business, and I, I continued on consulting and working with small companies. So that's the uh, last 30 years of my life. And, Paul, in your book, you described, gave a description of disruptive, which I thought was one of the best I've ever read. I wonder if you can explain to our audience what you mean by it, because I thought it was a fantastic um, well, are you referring specifically to the disruption fingerprint? Well, first, you, you explain what disruption means. And I think for a lot of our audience, they may be aware of it, but they're not exactly clear what you mean, what disruption means. And, uh, and I'd love for you to talk about it and talk about where you go from there. Because uh, you laid out everything in your book so beautifully. Um, I, but I'd, I'd like the horse to tell a story rather than me. Our next guest is Terry Lutz. Uh, he's here because he's got some interesting opinions that uh, I, I thought our audience... That was me hitting the wrong button. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, I think you, you touched on a very interesting point. I think a lot of people have heard disruption. Um, it gets talked about in the media all the time today, um, and it's certainly an explanation for uh, for the phenomenal success of companies like Airbnb and Uber and Google, but um, it, it's, uh, it, it's also an explanation for why companies like Kodak, um, which was as dominant in its day, as, as um, Uber or Google are today, um, how did they fail so quickly? And how did a company like Apple go from the verge of bankruptcy to the world's biggest company in less than 15 years? 
Um, and so what what disruption really is, um, is uh, I think of it as the archetypal David and Goliath story. It's it's a way, um, it's, it's the means by which a small company um, or startups, an outsider from, from a field, introduces a new approach. And that, that new approach could be, um, could be an entirely different, uh, different way of solving a problem. It could be um, an order of magnitude price improvement um, that allows them to basically introduce a simpler, uh, more convenient, um, or, or different, different way of uh, solving a problem that um, that basically the the incumbent uh, competitors in the marketplace can't respond to their their existing technologies, their existing processes, their existing resources, the way they do business are all impediments for them to move forward in in the new world, and that enables the the startup to basically introduce a new business model. And a new approach, and uh, to disrupt the disrupt them in the market. Um, the the process by which that happens is uh, I don't know if we want to go into a lot of detail on that. But in in the book, I talk about the idea of a disruption fingerprint. There's a set of um, attributes that that repeat over and over again, and when you see those attributes, that is the the definition of of disruption. And what um, and, are those uh, attributes? Well, there's a, a, a large number. The ones that you would most often see are um, what, uh, what you characterize as, as an inferior product, um, at least inferior with respect to what the existing marketplace values. Um, and another is that it could be lower cost. Another is that it's initially targeting um, an undesirable and a, and a smaller market than uh, than the incumbent technologies and incumbent products. And um, there's a number of other characteristics. One of uh, one of the more important ones is is notion of asymmetry of motivation, which basically is a fancy way of saying that the the existing players in the market are more incented to flee flee competition than to fight and um so there's there the reasons for that could be margin um it could be that the the technology if if they responded to it directly it undermines their own their own product that that was the case with kodak. Kodak actually invented the digital camera, but they could foresee even in the, in the mid-1970s that it would undermine their existing chemicals and photo finishing businesses, and they didn't see a business model where digital photography could play alongside the chemicals business. And because they didn't do anything with it, they eventually ended up getting disrupted by their own invention. That to me is that, a classic example uh, of it, and and that uh, they didn't have a management clever enough to say let's build a business side by side with it. So 
so that eventually we'll dominate on the digital side as we dominated on the, on the chemical side. Well, you know, yes, that's true, but I think almost all of us, unless you've studied disruption theory, would, would have made the same mistakes. Um, and and it's, it's hard to point to them and say that they were, they were bad managers or, or not aware. They, they obviously saw that if digital photography took off, it would it would undermine their business, but at the same time, in in 1975, they had a 0.1 megapixel uh, image sensor, and you compare that with where we are today, um, the the image quality was so poor, Kodak didn't see any way that would ever that consumers would ever prefer that over over uh, film, and so. Um, or, or at least it would be so far in the future that that investing in it would be a would be a waste of resources. So it, it's it, it's easy to criticize in hindsight, but you know I, I think without today in today's world and with people people like me and, and there's uh, there are other people that that understand disruption, but um, you know there, there there are places you can go to get. To get the expertise and understand what's what's happening in the marketplace. In those days, there really wasn't. Well, the name of your book. Before we go any further, right, is disruption by design, um, which is basically the idea that if you if you understand the principles of disruption, you can do it intentionally, and that that's an important. Uh, an important thing because although Christensen in his original book talked about um, disruptive innovation and identified the pattern that that happens repeatedly in the marketplace, he never um, articulated how to actually use that understanding to apply it. And and up, I mean, disruption has happened throughout history for thousands of years, but. It's only recently that we've understood that this is a this is an economic pattern that, that does recur, and that you can actually do it on purpose. And so, you know, disruptions as as long ago as the telephone versus the telegraph was is really um, an accidental disruption. It, it didn't it didn't happen because Alexander Graham Bell thought he could upend the, the telegraph business, he actually went to Western Union and tried to sell the telephone patents to them, thinking it was a better way to do telegrams. Very much so. Um, uh, in reading your book, it came to mind that the Gutenberg Bible is a d disruptive uh, force, if you really think about it. That's what came to um, mind when I read your book. Yeah, certainly movable type was one of the one of the biggest uh, disruptions because it put the printed word in the hands of of common people and enabled the education systems that we take for granted today. Well, uh, Uber would be considered a disruptive, would not? It not. Yes, absolutely, um, and and I think it's interesting you bring up Uber, and one reason is that most people think it's disruptive or, or most people would agree that it's disruptive but they would they would tell you for the wrong reason they think that it's because it's a cheaper taxi ride but 
but it really isn't, and that's not the reason why it's disrupting. Um, and this why actually goes. Well, this goes to the core of um, of what I call intentional disruption, and that is that if you understand the reason that the pattern occurs, that that's what enables you to replicate it. So what 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 enables disruption to occur is that there's a there's a market scarcity, and whether it's artificial or or uh, a real shortage of something, that shortage translates in the market into high prices, poor service, um, oligopoly or monopoly control of a market. And if you think about the um, you think about the taxi market, the, the, the traditional taxi market before Uber and, and other companies like it, um, and you imagine yourself in New York City in the rain and try to hail a cab. And I think most people would say that's that's an impossible task. That's harder than, you know, creating gold out of sand. And uh, what... What Uber does that's, that's interesting is it has a dynamic um, dynamic supply allocation model. So when you have high demand, their app automatically raises the price that they pay drivers, which floods the streets with, with um, more people willing to take rides. And, you know, that's, that's that dynamic allocation of supply to demand is addressing a critical market shortage that enables that gives them a solution nobody else can compete with. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's, it's an inferior service. They they're they're not trained in the same way. They're not right. They, they ignore the regulations. But the fact is, there's a market need there, and in that specific um, dynamic uh, supply allocation model, they are superior to every other way of um, uh, of getting a ride, well, and keep going, Paul. Please. Yeah. So, so, so it's basically what what um, what makes them disruptive is is the fact that nobody else, no taxi service can compete with them. I mean, the taxi services could have built the same application, but the the way they're regulated, their their infrastructure, they couldn't do this dynamic allocation model. So, so Uber's addressing a real market shortage. And it's not just it's not just the shortage that exists in New York. If you've ever been to Las Vegas when there's a trade show going on, you can't get a ride. Um, and and it's it's um so that 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 one aspect of their service enables them to do something nobody else can do. And from there they're able to branch out and um, and of course, compete very effectively with with taxi services and black car services, and various other um, markets that they're getting into now, like food delivery and and so on. So, Paul, I would like you to stay on uh, because our next guest has a, a, an interesting take. And when I booked the two of you, I thought of, um, uh, it might be interesting. Do you mind staying on? Sure. Well, first, tell us again your book. The book is Disruption by Design. How to create products that that disrupt and then dominate markets. Well, right. our next guest 
I'm going to invite him to join us, is William Goodspeed. Uh, he's Hello. felt like quitting a time or two. His new book, Buzzkill, takes an unconventional look into the interactions of corporations and provides managerial strategies for retaining employees. And the reason I wanted to welcome to the program, Bill. Thanks. Good to be on it. Well, um, uh, Paul Pat, Pats has been talking about disruption. You, your book um, talks a, a looks at things differently, but, but what's really interesting and the reason I want both of you on is because you're taking very unconventional looks, and both of your books are absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Uh, it makes me really enjoy my job. Uh, Bill, we, we always ask our guests first to say a little bit about themselves personally and their background before we go any further. Okay, well, thanks. I'm glad to be on the show. And I'm a um, semi-retired uh, business executive, and I've ran I've run uh, several large uh, uh, businesses in my career, both in private and public uh, companies. And about three years ago or so, I decided to write a novel that satirizes corporate America using a lot of funny things that I've seen, both in the companies where I worked and other companies. And um, writing's a passion of mine, so I, I did it and, and created the novel Buzzkill, which is, is as you say, maybe a template for management lessons, but it's also just a humorous take on the craziness of corporate America and what causes so much frustration in the, in the workforce, but hopefully done in such a fun way that uh, even if you don't care about that stuff, you'd love to read it. Well, t tell us two or three of the key points that you try to make in your book. Well, the, what the one of the main issues that large companies face, uh, in, in America anyway, is that they've become so corporate correct and so regimented that they're taking all the, um, the fun out of work and all the personal fulfillment that employees feel and, and empowerment. And one of the big lessons of the book is that by empowering employees at all levels and letting them have fun, that they can achieve uh, amazing things, uh, things that no one could even dream of. And that's been my experience in my career. When people, when people are allowed to really do what they want and they can be motivated uh, and inspired to do it, they, they do great things. Uh, whereas the opposite is also true when they're, they're highly regimented, and there are rules upon rules. They tend to be very disaffected with their jobs and often leave their jobs, but certainly if they stay, they don't do a good job. Uh, Bill, we have this new generation uh, coming up that uh, really doesn't like the conventional. We're seeing now that they could get uh, uh, paid uh, parental leave, uh, they get they get gourmet meals and all of that. Do you feel this is a good thing, or do you feel that um, it's it's uh, frosting rather than real change? Well, I, th I think it's a it's a good thing. I think the the fact that the new generation is more demanding of their employers is is great, and it's something that employers ought to be doing anyway because the interests of their customers and their shareholders are aligned with the employees, but people often don't see it that way. But by making the workplace fun 
and empowering, which is attractive to the millennials, they're going to achieve better, much better results for for customers and shareholders. It's not it's not a trade off. So it's a great thing. Well, it's a great thing, but um, large corporations were uh, developed in order to manage resources. Uh, are you saying that we're now able to uh, kind of loosen the strings and allow things to happen more freely than in the regimented wor- uh, workforce that I suspect you and I are closer in age uh, that when we started out, uh, it was much more regimented? Well, I think it, 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 in many places it's still very regimented and people are very fearful of, of lawsuits or other incidents happening and as a result, they're piling rules upon rules, and um, it, it's counter—it's counterproductive. Of course, of course, there have to be rules in any organization. But I'll tell you, one thing that can be done without rules is for leaders and managers at all levels to pay a lot of attention to what the rank and file thinks and what they believe. And in my experience, if you ask people their opinion on things and how to make things better. Not only do they come up with a lot of good ideas, but they're they're extremely motivated by being asked, and then they'll come forward again and again. And in, in my career, I've found that organizations that listen to their employees tend to have very very high employee satisfaction scores. Doesn't mean they're getting free sushi and in the cafeteria or anything like that. But the single biggest thing people can do is ask and listen. It's very motivating at all levels. I'm going to go back to Paul for a minute and say, do you see this as part of a disruption, a disruption in the managerial field as well? Are you seeing that in your consulting and your experience? Well, I wouldn't call it disruption, you know, according to the parameters of the theory, but I do see it as being related. And, and um, what I think, um, and, and I think Bill is kind of alluding to this in, in his in his talk is the way the corporation exists today is very much an artifact of the industrial revolution and and was designed around people needing to be at work at seven in the morning to to make you know to be part of the factory um, be a cog in the wheel and people had less education and they were. They, they were basically thought of as being part of the factory, not not intelligent, capable people, and so we, we really are in a in a period where we need to re-engineer um, the corporation to to make the fullest advantage of the people and 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 really respect their contribution. And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the technology startups in Silicon Valley. They do this second nature, and it's partly because they're all starting companies right out of university. So um, they don't even think about the, the old way of the old model of working. It's, it's interesting, Paul. That's a great point. Um, baby boomers Bill, are quitting. Can you speak up a little bit louder? Oh, sure. My engineer yeah. is saying. Uh, okay, sorry. Um, Paul's point's a great one, and there's there's a trend among baby boomers even to quit their traditional jobs to start businesses. And 
when asked why, um, 60% of them say it's for reasons that have nothing to do with money. It's for personal fulfillment or bill. It's for passion, things like that. And that's, that's what's missing in a lot of people's lives in the, in the workplace. And, and that's why, well, it's not disruptive in and of itself, but that's what's making some people go to disruptive things like Uber that Paul was talking about. You can be your own boss and, and, and have a good time and meet people and make money at the same time. And, um, and I think these things are very attractive to not only the millennials, but, but a lot of boomers as well. So you're indicating that uh, the old way was not as fulfilling to people as, uh, uh, especially in this uh, almost this new uh, world we're in of uh, personal satisfaction being important. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I'm. Uh, I guess I'm. I'm. I'm definitely of the older generation. Um, we were taught that we went to work. And we we worked and we went home and uh, we worked for the family and for the next generation. But is it is it uh, growing now that we're really f- focusing on our current generation rather than the next generation? No, I don't think so. It's 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 um, well, two things. First of all, it's not a trade-off. The the people who enjoy their work and are listened to and empowered will perform far better uh, than others. And if you, you, you can look at real-life examples like a restaurant or an airline, and you can tell by the happiness of the people what the, how they're treated and it's reflected in their service levels. The other thing to keep in mind is that despite a whole lot of studies that indicate that there's, there's – uh, a reinforcing mechanism between employee happiness and, and customer satisfaction, a lot of companies don't pay enough attention to it. They just have a hard time believing that the, the low-level people can come up with great ideas and should be listened to or should be put in places other than the cube farm and so on. And so I'd say the minority of companies, clear minority of companies, um, have have that employee-oriented you that makes work more fun and empowering. Well, let me give you the example of Southwest Airlines, which, as you know, started from Dallas as a, a short flight uh, and sure. grew into a, a mega airline. And I throw this out to either one of you. Um, their people, when they started out, were, were amongst the most enthusiastic people. Yet, uh, according to people I've talked to, uh, now that they've become a big airline, they've lost uh, a lot of their uh, uh, elan, and they're having problems. Their their pilots are um, uh, seeking a union now, et cetera. Uh, is it because companies grow too big that they they kind of lose sight of uh, hearing their people? Well, I, th- I think it's a natural tendency for organizations as they grow bigger to become less personal and and more regimented and more reliant on, on rules and structure. And so Southwest is probably going through that, although I would say by comparison, the Southwest people are much, much happier than what I can see in other domestic airlines, except maybe Delta. Well, Paul, 
Southwest was a disruptive force. Absolutely. Would you like to comment on that? Well, my, my, my perception, I mean, I think a lot of what Bill is saying is true. Um, I do think that there's, it isn't necessary that as a company gets bigger and operationalizes sort of the rules and procedures and the bureaucracy, it isn't necessary that it becomes depersonalized and, and a, and a us versus them mentality, which is, which is really, I think what you see with, with a lot of older style companies between the management and the employees. Um, it's, it, it may be happening, but it isn't necessary to happen. And I think it's, it's really an imperative uh, that the management has to almost have as part of their charter that they they understand that all the people in the company are needed to be thinking in order to and to be happy with their work in order to deliver the best service and product. And the reason that, that everybody enjoyed flying in Southwest in the early days was because the employees were happy. And it's exactly what Bill was saying uh, five or ten minutes ago. Um, you know, happier employees equals better service equals more loyal customers. Well, I, I see our next guest has joined us, Jeff Tenery. And he's a, a CEO and founder of a very interesting approach. And, uh, I would like, Bill and uh, Paul, I hope you'll stay on with us and contribute. Uh, sure. Um, Jeff, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, Jeff, you're, you're uh, CEO and founder of On Demand Hiring Platform, and I want to get into that. We've been talking about uh, disruption. We've been talking about uh, a, a very, very good book uh, that really looks at the, the corporate world in a, a little differently. I have to tell you, Bill, I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, and now, now you're Jeff. You're on, uh, and you're co-founder of of Moonlighting. <laughs> Moonlighting. Moonlightingapp.com. And uh, before we get into that, and we get a, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we do anything else. You got it. I am a 27-year uh, veteran of what. Uh, has been the mobile uh, industry rise. Uh, so I started climbing up cell towers back in the uh, late 80s, put myself through college and uh, with Bell Atlantic and 9X and, uh, and, and kind of rode up through the uh, 90s as you know all the different telecommunications uh, businesses consolidated and came together. And then I really spent the last 10 years working in uh, venture-backed companies that are really taking mobile to the next stage beyond just devices and even just the service itself, but the content, the media, and really now the commerce that's taking place in the, on mobile phones. Okay, now tell us about uh, your, your your company and how it fits into what we've been talking about. Well, I think, you know, uh, in, in catching uh, certainly the last couple of points around Southwest and, and happy cus uh, happy employees, um, I, I think right now the disillusion of most um, employees in, in corporate America is one that, you know, when you think about salaries and wages and the stagnation of those things, most people are, you know, 
not making enough to make ends meet, educational bills, you know, and I'm a father of five and I have many, many educational bills ahead of me. Um, but there's really a difficult time in being able to make ends meet with today's salaries, corporates, uh, corporations really, you know, having a lot of leverage over the last eight years since the recession and really being able to, uh, you know, kind of contain control of their, of the balance sheet. They're not investing the same way they did in hiring at the same rates they were pre-recession. And now the millennial generation's really gotten caught up in that where they're coming out of school with, you know, large bills and not being able to really find full-time employment. So the whole kind of rise of what moonlighting is about is this whole thing around the sharing economy, the gig economy. You know, politicians are talking about it really daily now with, uh, with all the news around Uber and really this, this changing of the guard and, and where employment, as we knew it, as you work for a big corporation, you retire after 30 years and you get the gold watch and you head down to Florida. What's happening now is millennials are not buying into it. They saw their parent, you know, their parents get, you know, relatively uh, uh, the, their savings uh, ravaged through with some really bad economic situations. And so what you're seeing is a, a change of generational thinking that you don't need to work for the full-time company. You don't trust the man. And now you start to work in ways that you create leverage for yourself by being a freelancer. And, and your app does what? So what Moonlighting does, um, it's really, uh, it's been called by many in the press uh, almost like a Craigslist without the creepiness, uh, but with, also, with uh, Uber and PayPal functionality. So our app helps people find jobs very quickly, very unique to their own skill sets because you're, you're sharing things that you want to do and the things that you want to work on. And vice versa, it actually is a two-way marketplace that lets you do the other things where, hey, I need things to get done. I need to find this particular unique skill set or this type of job that I want to hire and I need help in doing so. And so it really is a 21st century version of classifieds, directories, and just a faster way for people to use technology to find employment. In short, you're another disruptive type of approach. I think so, too. And I, and I think I made the statement even earlier, you know, coming into the call, is that I don't think full-time employment and even the numbers to see with the government reports I don't think it's uh, they're accurate. I think there's a lot of people that are just plain uh, dropped out, and that a lot of those are millennials, um, and a lot of them are kind of the disillusioned that are looking at, hey, I want a lifestyle of being able to manage my own career, uh, almost as if they're like a little micro business or a small business unto themselves. And really that what we're saying in the future is instead of having one WQ check coming into the household, you'll see the whole household uh, with many different inputs coming in income-wise from many different, uh, what you can call them clients or customers, or in this case, just sources of of income. Can I go back to Paul for a minute? And, Paul, what do you think about this, and does this fit into your uh, into your pattern? Well, I'm, I'm actually just looking at the, uh, the website right now, um, and trying to decide that it, it uh, one of the things that, that I can't know and, and can't offer an opinion on because I, d I don't know the, the company is what's the business model and and how how um, you know what what shortage is being addressed. It looks like it's a good idea, um, but it, not everything has to be disruptive to be successful. So so. Um, whether it's uh, Uber scale, I don't know, but it looks like a good idea. 
Bill, what, what's your um, uh, how does this fit into what you've been uh, feeling and thinking? Well, I think this, along with other things, are a, a reaction to, as Jeff said, just distrusting the man. And um, people just aren't they're not getting paid enough to make it worthwhile to put up with a, a job that's not fulfilling. So they're increasingly going off to start their own thing or work for small businesses, or in the case of the millennials, just starting right out as entrepreneurs. And um, it's, 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 a, it's a pattern I'm seeing all through uh, American industry. People are just tired of the, of the structure of the dehumanizing corporate world, and they're doing other things. So to me, it makes total sense. It fits perfectly. Jeff, uh, I would say I would say one thing. I think we definitely do need new models where it's because the 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 way work is going to unfold in the next fifty years is everybody is going to be their own company. Everybody's going to be a freelancer, and we need ways to connect those people. I agree. I agree. I've uh, uh, I've given this site to several people, my young people. And, and one uh, middle-aged person, and they all came back with the same comment. I would, uh, they signed up. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, it's very nice of you to be promoting that. And uh, and by the way, you are technically moonlighting by helping me drive business. But that, I, I do think what what's happening here is it's not a you know it's not a shift that's going to be you know a clean shift. And I think that's why a lot of folks in the media are not able to put their arms around it. I get quite a few requests of saying. Hey, how much of the sharing economy and on-demand economy is really happening? Are you sure it's not just the casual or the intermittent user? And the answer is absolutely it is right now because we haven't, you know, corporations are not doing massive layoffs in all in one kind of scoop the way they did, you know, years back. And so they're being more, you know, uh, gradual about how they're managing their books and how they're handling the hiring, but it's absolutely happening. And so what we think with Moonlighting, again, the big premise we have is, it's really like a, like a gateway or a bridge to people going from what they've known, which has been a full-time job, and then using it as a way to supplement. And then really it's like diversifying your stock portfolio. You're just going to create some leverage so that if, you know, if the rug does get pulled out from underneath you and you do lose your job, there is a means for you and there's a ways to do it. And so with the beauty of Uber and Airbnb and all these other you know, kind of trailblazing companies is they've you know, it's kind of paved the way for companies like us to come in kind of on a second wave and provide just more. It's really just bringing technology so that the average Joe can come in and say, you know what, I'm not going to hit the panic button. I have other means for me to, to create income. And it's not always about really the, the, really what we grew up with. And I grew up, I'm 47. And, you know, I always you know was told by my dad who worked at a large telecommunications company that I had to work for the same company for 30 years. And that was kind of the plan. And I think really that plan is really, it's it's not it's a false plan for what not only the millennial generation, but we're seeing you know baby boomers and people who have retired who've seen their savings decimated through through a lot of the collapse, looking to get back into the workflow and have incredible skills and assets that people just don't know about. So it's really all about you know moonlighting or other companies about providing you know ways for people to find people, discoverability, and that's really the number one issue. And then other other tools that help them become their own little independent business. Bill, you, 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 Jeff brought up an interesting point. Bill, do you think the wave of, of uh, mass layoffs that have occurred over the last few years 
modified the uh, corporate uh, model that uh, Jeff described? I, I don't know if it's the layoffs that did it, but they've, they've certainly contributed to it. And it used to be that there was mutual loyalty between company and its people, and that relationship is frayed over the last couple decades. The layoffs just contributed to that. But the you know, cutting back of benefits, uh, more structure, more rules, and all these things make uh, people feel more like cogs or chattel versus thinking beings that really can contribute. And all that has is, is, is changed the way so many people look at, at their employer and work. And, and now it's it's not, as Jeff said, it's not one company your whole career. It's go where it makes sense uh, for you, you personally. Um, and it's not being gritty, greedy. It's not being short-sighted. It's, it's, it's seeking fulfillment and growth that they're not getting in traditional jobs. So, Jeff, you think that over time we will all, most employees will be uh, uh, utilizing yours and other applications and building, and we won't have this, if I heard you correctly. Yeah, I'm not in, I'm not involved in politics as much as I like to be, but a lot of it has actually come my way, and I think that's why a lot of the politicians are trying to figure out is you know how um, negative of an impact this will have on people in the form of like benefits and insurance, which is which is a good thing. But I do believe that the pendulum is actually so far over in one end right now, which is corporations think about the the profitability, how high the stock market is, has risen. And how really it seems like almost every company hits their quarterly earnings, especially the, the Fortune Top 500. And they're doing so because they're not really hiring. Um, and I think what's, hap- what's happening, too, they're able to maintain kind of a, a wage stagnation and, a, and keeping wages down. So I think what's happening now or what will happen through this technology is that the worker will gain leverage back by using technology and being able to really become, I use the term free agent, almost like you know sports analogy, where you'll see that that because I know what's more, what's happening around me more because of technology, because of mobile technology, I will now make myself available more, and then that will create more of a demand for my services, and that's just a natural supply-demand shift. And I think right now, you know, really, the thing about the historic rise of the stock market's gone up because really the hiring hasn't come back, not relative to the, to the population growth, and you're going to see with technology, with mobile devices, the millennials were are actually, in my opinion, the millennial generation will kind of take back the leverage a bit and bring it more towards the middle. Where, you know, not as every, I don't think every corporation is going to run out there and just have no full time employment. I just think it's going to be a steady stream where the leakage you see coming off of their lack of hiring is going to go towards the freelance market, and that we just need to provide the right tools and the right policy and legislation to support it. Well, uh, what do you mean by legislation? Uh, for instance, the Cannibal Care Act uh, has redefined what is a full-time employee and that 30 hours, et cetera. And now the National Labor Relations Board has just come out with a, a new set of rules of what, rep, of what is a contractor and who is a full-time employee. It seems that that's a reaction to what you're saying. I do. I think when you think about uh, you know Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush and all sorts of the different politicians, the election year is coming up very quickly here in November and then for next year, obviously, presidential year. So they're all jockeying to try to figure out how to deal with the question which is going to be on voters' minds, which is 
how are you going to create more jobs and more opportunity for me when I've had 15 years of no wage growth and I've got very limited opportunities for full-time employment that I want to do. And so I think they don't really have an answer for it. So that's why you're seeing a lot of the politicians go, I think, pretty deep into this subject in the next, you know, 60 to 90 days because they have to. And then I think the presidential candidates are absolutely going to make this a big deal, especially when you think about the, you know, how impressive Uber's growth has been and other, other companies in that in the space. So I, I just think politically um, you will see a lot of people putting, you know, a lot of the politicians putting, trying to put together a platform and policies that will either cater to the voter that is a self-employed, you know, voter, which I think is obviously more of the mass audience and how you get, you know, the majority of the votes. So I think you'll see small business legislation. I think you'll see maybe tax implicate, you know, tax credits or incentives and things of that nature are really, I think, will drive the next round of elections because this is where the voters, you know, they're already hurt in their pocketbooks. They don't own stocks and the stock market doesn't mean as much to them. Millennials aren't even saving or investing. So I think right now it's going to come down to what type of things the politicians can do to attract uh, people in the sharing economy to, to feel more comfortable, feel safer, and realize that really that's the way they have to pursue their lives and their careers. And it's because they can't make the corporations change their, their hiring habits. Bill, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think there's clearly a trend towards atomizing the working force, people branching off on, the, on their own. And that's going to create a lot of legal issues around, around benefits, which came from the traditional job which aren't there so much in the sharing economy, and, and that will have to be addressed probably by the government, as Jeff said. The other thing that we ought to keep in mind is that this splitting up of the workforce is, is good on one hand, but it's not good on another hand because uh, the there's a lot of job satisfaction that comes with being part of a group, part of a team, uh, with a common goal that, that works together over time and empower each other and listen to each other. And it, it would be unfortunate, I think, if if people break off into their own, basically their own little company uh, all over society and we don't have the, as much the power of the glue of an organization, even though obviously they'll be working together some. Um, and and so I, I hope companies, I, I hope companies can step back and see that the, that this trend is happening that, that Jeff talked about and Paul talked about, and that there are a couple ways to handle it. One is to to outsource a lot of things and contract, and the other is to change the way they view people and treat people, and and make work more meaningful and fun. And I think the companies that do that are the ones that are really going to win uh, in the future. I agree, Paul. Any comments you'd like to make? Um, yeah, I, I've heard a whole bunch of things that I would jump on, but um, one thing I think in terms of the, the political environment, there definitely does need to be some some framework for, um, for for how to deal with people that are left out of the traditional social safety net and um, and uh, you know the benefits platforms that big companies provide. But the, the flip side of that is that. Inviting politicians to get involved in this, I think, is, is asking for a disaster because the, the, the first principle of politics should be do no harm. And uh, 
to to jump in and try to regulate this before we've even figured out what the this is is asking for just asking for a, a disaster and, and asking asking really to cripple the economy before it actually gets off the ground um, you know I, I i'm I'm not a fan of everything that uber has done um i I think they have have had a very uh, in some cases almost offensive attitude towards the market and in breaking rules because they, they don't think any of them apply to them on the other hand the the regulatory environment that they're rebelling against is part of the reason that the services that they're providing are such a such a vast improvement and and so you, you can't you can't fix the problem without breaking some eggs um, and you know the the one thing I'd say about the large company and the the, the employees and and this whole the moonlighting thing is um you know I, I agree with bill that there there are natural benefits to to people and people choose to work together in teams because it's more gratifying How, however um there is also going to be an ongoing trend for what I would call fluidly dynamic organizations where where there are temporary teams that are assembled to to create a product or to get to get a project done and and then they'll move on and do something else so there's going to be more and more of this moonlighting um kind of thing going on it's it's it's, it's inevitable and you know I, I just think we can't we got to let we got to let it develop and see see what the issues are and not not try to Overregulate before before we know what those issues are going to be, and That's and right. I wouldn't I wouldn't trust any politician who said they have a solution to this. That's a great comment. We're getting up to the end of the hour. I'm going to start with Jeff and uh, tell us uh, how people can reach you and any final comments you'd like to make. No, thank you very much. Um, we can be reached at a, a website moonlighting app or moonlighting app.com we have a wonderful mobile application that helps people find jobs um, very quickly or you know when you're looking to hire someone it's not just uh, one-sided so uh, very much appreciate being on the panel today I've, very, just, I've always learned when i uh, get a chance to talk with uh, professionals and like this and it's really uh it is a way that is not changing, and it's one that uh, it needs to be embraced. And it isn't mean like everything cuts over in one day. I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but I, I really appreciate all the comments today, and, and uh, I wish everyone the best here on the call. Well, stay on. Uh, Bill, uh, final thoughts? Well, um, if, if people want to uh, have a laugh and learn some of these lessons, I recommend the novel Buzzkill. Um, or if you want to get a hold of me, there's a website, buzzkillgoodspeed.com. Um, and it, like Jeff said, I, I also really appreciate being on this panel. I thought it was very interesting, and I learned I learned as I listened, and uh, wish everyone the best. Thanks for having me on. Well, I have to tell you, your book is terrific. Thank you. Thank Paul, you very much. You were, uh, I'm, uh, no, thank you. Paul Patch. Uh, you get the last uh, word, uh, your book and how people can reach you and your company. Sure. My book is, is available. Um, it's Disruption by Design. You can get it at pretty much any um, 
any uh, place that sells books. Um, and uh, my company is InnovativeDisruption.com. And um, and you can actually reach me in either one of those places. I, I have uh, many social media accounts, and um, and those are linked to from Amazon and various places. So if you find me on Amazon, you'll find how to how to find me. Well, you know, Paul Pats, William Goodspeed, and Jeff Tenery, thank you very much for uh, one of our more interesting hours, and thank you for taking the time to come tonight. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank pleasure you. being here. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you. And have a good day.